All right. All right. <clears throat> well, let's go straight to work this morning. Uh, I've got a few things I need to get to, and so uh, grab your Bibles. Let's turn to Mark chapter 10. Uh, we're going to keep moving along. Uh, I would love to, like, jump ahead, but I think we're going to miss things, and, and, and you know, let me, let me kind of, I, I say this, I think, a lot, but <clears throat> one of the things that I kind of continue, uh, uh, maybe, maybe because I'm pushed in different areas, when I uh, learn a book of the Bible, when I like devour it and I go through it, whether for a journal or whether for anything else, I, I find myself uh, having to think about things that uh, not necessarily I wanted to think about, but because of the context of the scriptures, I'm pressed to have a thought about it. And um, the other thing that I enjoy doing to the Bible, as much as, uh, uh, especially as we've been going through Isaiah on Wednesday, I'm not going to lie, some of the prophetic stuff begins to weigh on me because it's not, uh, it's talking about a time to come and there's definitely uh, 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 some things to talk about when, we, when we're talking about prophetic words, but I really love uh, when the Bible is rooted in this humanness, uh, this, this, I don't even know how to describe it, like this... Uh, this part where it's it's hard to um, uh, uh, where where conversations take place where we see uh, uh, the the mess so to speak uh, and uh, I, I love that part of the Bible. This is gonna not be any different. It's probably one of the reasons I'm gonna enjoy preaching a little bit of this today because this is a conversation that takes place between Jesus and his disciples, and we're just going to jump right in. We're going to pick it up at verse 32, and then we're going to read down to about verse 45 or so, and then we're going to talk for a bit. I don't normally like put out bullet points and things today, but, but I will say this, that I noticed that as I started to come across this whole uh, text that... Um, uh, that there were like, if you wanted to call it bullet points or things that I came across, I came across five things that stood out to me in this text. And so we'll deal with those things individually. Uh, and, and, and then we'll let you kind of chew on that and see where it takes you. I know for me, I shared with Michael yesterday, one of the things that affected me the most from this, and hopefully one of these things will affect you uh, as, as it affected me. Mark 10 verses 32 through 45. Are we there? Say amen. 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 It reads, they were now on the way up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were filled with awe, and the people following behind were overwhelmed with fear. Taking the twelve disciples aside, Jesus once more began to describe everything that was about to happen to him. Listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the, to the leading priests and teachers of the religious law. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip, and kill him. But after three days he will rise again. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor what is your request, he asked. They replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering that I am about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering I must be baptized with? Oh, yes, they replied, we're able. Then Jesus told them, 
You will indeed drink from my bitter cup and be baptized with my baptism of suffering. But I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. God has prepared those places for the ones that he has chosen. When the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. So Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers in this world lorded over, the people, over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. For many. We'll stop right there. Now, Jesus begins this whole thing. This whole thing begins with prophetic talk. He's talking prophetically towards what he is going to face. He isn't talking about someone else's life. He's not saying this is going to happen to someone else. He's talking about his own life right here. He's talking of being betrayed. Listen to the gravity of of what he's saying. He talks of being sentenced to die. He talks of being mocked and spit upon and flogged and ultimately killed. He starts to talk about the resurrection even, saying a few words there, but he's interrupted. And this leads me to the first thing I see. And this is something I think we're all guilty of. This is the humanness of the Bible, by the way. I would tell you this, be in the moment. Be in the moment. Like, I know you're sitting here right now. This is what this means to be in the moment. I know you're sitting here right now, but where are you? Are you here? Are you listening to the Word of God this morning? Or are you planning out your bills? Are you thinking about what's going to happen afterwards? Are you planning out lunch? Your stomach has a way of doing that for you. Are you, are you somewhere else? Be in the moment. What kind of question do you ask in that kind of moment? Jesus is talking about things that are weighty. By the way, this is their best friend. This is the guy they say they'll die for. Right? What kind of question would you ask in that moment? Are you really listening to his words? Or are you so filled with awe like the disciples at the fact that Jesus is really being followed at this point by so many people? And guess what? You're in the inner circle. You are in the inner circle of the guy who right now is super popular. Would you be pondering position and power when your friend and leader is literally talking about being beaten to death think about it visually imagine this Jesus is predicting his suffering and eventual death and yet rather than address or have a question to ask about this they're too busy pondering who's going to sit on the right side of him when he dies and who's going to sit on the left side of him when he dies Jesus actually says they're going to mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip, and kill him. And immediately it's like James and John go, yeah, that's great, but what about me? What about me? Can I sit next to you when you rule? Oh, my goodness. Be in the moment. You got to be in the moment. That's not the right question for the time. 
You have to be in the moment. Listen to the person that is talking. Listen. Hear what they say. Think about what they're saying so that you can respond accordingly. The whole thing reveals, what this whole thing reveals is the internal thoughts of their mind. And how you respond to others reveals yours. Let me say that again. This whole thing reveals the internal thoughts of their mind. And guys, how you respond to other people when they're talking will reveal yours. Do you? Because I promise you, people pick up on it. You can tell when somebody's listening to you talk and when somebody's not. You got kids. And if, you ain't, if your kids ain't there yet, they will be. Where they just be like, telling you what you want to hear and ain't listening to a single word you said. Right? We all know how to do it. We're all born into it. We know. Listen, it's, it's, it's all interesting. The dynamics of human interaction is all interesting. For the most part, because we're reading the gospel and not visually seeing it, we miss the humanness of these conversations. Like, immediate, I don't, I, for the most part, we skip over things like this. And we're so busy trying to find the rooted, foundational, concrete truth that we miss the humanness that makes up the whole situation. We're enamored by everything that comes out of Jesus' mouth that we forget the interaction that he's actually... Because, by the way, guys, this is how he talks to his kids. When his kids are doing what our kids do, and they're not paying attention when we're talking, how he responds is a lesson to us, and we're going to talk a little bit about that, too. You have to visualize this or else you're going to miss the humanness of the whole thing. And that's really the trick, visualizing, approaching this from the vantage point of each individual in the conversation. I mean, lucky for us, we have Matthew's account of this very conversation. And Matthew gives us another clue of actually what went down. He records of a whole other person asking the question about who is going to be seated in the place of honor. And this also brings the conversation into a whole other place. Listen in Matthew 20. You don't have to turn there, but Matthew 20, verses 20 through 22. This picks up the same story as it starts again. Except this time it reads, Then the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her sons. She knelt respectfully to ask a favor. What is your request? He asked. She replied, In your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in the places of honor next to you, on the, one on the right and the other on your left. But Jesus answered them, right? He didn't answer her. He answered them. Now, listen, we've already talked about this when we started Mark, but just as a refresher, we've established that most theologians, right, most theologians believe that the apostle Peter dictated to Mark this gospel account, so that when we read Mark's gospel account, we're hearing the words of the Apostle Peter. That being said, it's interesting to me that Peter omits that it was their mom that asked this question, which makes more sense now when we read Mark 10, 41, where it says that the disciples were indignant. If you don't know what the word indignant means, it means annoyed. It means they were offended. I mean, come on. You got your mom to ask a question for you? Hey, mom, will you ask Jesus? Because um, I know it's like, you know what that reveals? It reveals they knew it was inappropriate. But if my mom asks, he ain't going to come down with my mom. Because, man, Jesus ain't going to yell at my mom, right? <laughs> That's what you're thinking. Jesus won't yell at my mom. He might yell at me. I've seen him get mad with, you know, people and dump tables over, but it'll be my mom. 
These guys, listen, they are grown men acting like this. Grown men. Which leads me to the second thing I want as that I pick up along this trail. Be strong enough to own your own questions and decisions. Come on now. My dad simply said it like this in my house. He said, son, be a man. Be a man. That, you, you, if you want to be treated like one, you've got to start like acting like one. Be a man. Own your own decisions. If you're going to do it, be prepared for the consequences of it. Be a man. They asked their mom to ask this question. But what's interesting, because even Matthew says, Jesus just answered them. He knew it wasn't her asking this question. He knew it wasn't coming from her, so he just addresses them. Jesus knows that it's not her asking. Even Peter and the rest of the disciples knew that it wasn't the mom asking the question. Peter didn't even bother including her in there. And I wonder if this is what many of us are hoping for at times with our pastors or people that we perceive that might be more holy or praying than we are, that somehow they will mediate with Jesus for you. But that isn't how this works. You don't get to use someone else who you believe might be more holy or God will find less offensive to go to God for you. We often kid about the praying grandmother who's lived their whole life for God having that extra ticket in which to bring someone to heaven with her. But can I tell you something, church? There are no extra tickets. Your relationship with God is your own. There are no mediators between man and God except Jesus Christ. So if you have a question for Jesus, ask away. He can answer you better than anyone else can. Your mother's relationship with Jesus is not going to save you. Your, your, your pastor's relationship with Jesus is not going to save you. The church's work or outreach and all the things we do is not going to save you. Only Jesus can do that. It's just you and Jesus. Now, as a pastor, <clears throat> I can help with godly counsel. But listen, and hear me when I say this, because I think this is a misconception in the church. But God's will for your life will only be revealed to you by and through Jesus. I can help guide you to what is godly. But what the will of God for your life is, is only between you and Jesus. And if you take somebody else's word for what the will of God of your life is, that's your fault. You can go to Jesus yourself. You don't need your mom. You don't need your pastor. You don't need anybody else to go to Jesus. There's no mediator between man and God. Except the man, Jesus Christ. And you have free access to him. Free access. It's amazing to me that Peter, he just cut through the bull. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not tolerating this. I mean, can you imagine Peter who gets in trouble all the time? Own that junk. At least every time I question, I've been called the devil. I mean, can you think about how Peter's perspective, right? He's been called the devil before. I mean, he's been rebuked by God. He's had to ask some questions that he got all the blame for. And you're going to ask your mom, it's hard for him to respect you. Maybe this is why there's jealousy at the end when Peter's going, well, what about John? After the resurrection, I don't know if you remember this, they're on the beach. And he's like, what because Jesus just gets you telling Peter how he's going to die. Well, this is how you're going to die, Peter. Well, what about John? <laughs> There's no, like, if I got to die this whole, like, manly way where I got to stand up to it, what about this guy who's been, like, just pansying along, man? Got his mom to ask questions. He's just been there around the women the whole time, which, by the way, if you look in the gospel, read it. He's around the women all the time. Like, he's around Jesus' mom. Remember that whole story? He plays out on the cross. This is your mother now. 
You got to take care of the women, John. John's like a mama's boy. I mean, it's, it's weird to follow through the gospel and see how many times he's around that, you know. The next thing I begin to see, and this is something what I was explaining to Michael yesterday, maybe where I got hit the hardest in this whole thing is this. Uh, we're to be like Jesus in this moment. What John was saying and how he even approached it is so offensive in my opinion. It's ignorant and it's annoying. But like Jesus, we've got to be slow to anger. And like Jesus, we have to be slow when addressing an offense. This is important. Jesus wasn't offended. I don't know if we get that sometimes. Like, he, he wasn't offended. That should be another lesson to us. Rather than point out to John and James how insensitive they were being, he just turned this moment into a learning opportunity. I wonder if this is where we to, you know, kind of fall short in our witness. We become so easily offended and we immediately turn uh, <coughs> anger, uh, turn to anger in our offense and we fail to cease the opportunity of having a conversation that could actually or possibly grow another person closer to the truth of Jesus. I have to think about that. Was the question misplaced? Yes. Was this question inappropriate? Yes. Was it insensitive? Yes. Um, were they really trying to hurt Jesus with their words, though? No. No. Jesus sees their ignorance. Um, how, how, well, how well do you handle when someone's saying something ignorant or dumb? Are you at the edge? I know that as somebody who deals with a point of sales uh, as a job, and, and I see people who, like, I wonder if they were ever raised by parents, you know? And, and what I mean by that is to say, like, they think that, hey, well, I, you know, I just came in. It was closed, but, you know, I, it's like I saw somebody going through the gate, so I just came in. And somewhere your mom didn't teach you, like, if the door's locked, you don't come in. Like, just because I walked in my locked door doesn't mean you come in my locked door. Like, I don't know where you thought that was, a, right? But I want to be offended by that. And even right now, you can hear as the rant wants to come out of me, right? But how I behave in that moment, how I conduct myself in that moment, will say more about who Jesus is in me. And that'll be the witness that we'll have. People expect you to be angry when it's an appropriate moment to be angry so that when you show them love instead of anger, it baffles them. They don't know what to think of it. They don't know how to react to it. There are a lot of moments in life where we're going to be offended. It, by the way, we're living in probably the best generation for it. This generation has figured out how to offend everybody. We're offended for being white. We're offended for being black. We're offended for every race under the sun. We're offended for every word we say. We're offended for our political uh, affiliation. We're, we're offended because there's only male and female. Why isn't there more? I don't know. That's just the way it is, guys. It's the way it is. But we're offended by it. We're offended by everything. And, and, and if ever there was a time to show love and to be love, it's now. Now, that doesn't make us, uh, I'll be the first one to tell you, uh, I believe in turning the other cheek, but at some point, you ain't going to have a cheek left if you keep turning it. 
So that at some point, there's a time, there's a time for, a, for a line, right? There's a time for those things. But I promise you, there's more time for love. There's more time for that. Jesus sees all of these things. He knows they don't know what they're talking about. Uh, it's like uh, getting in a theological discussion or anything with anybody else when I talk to people. I'll, I'll talk to some people, and I know they don't know. They know just enough about the Bible to be dangerous. And when I say dangerous, I mean just to say that, like, they could take something that was untrue and, with a few scriptures, try to make it sound true. And, and it's what they believe, and, and, hey, that's great. But I also know that if I just give them time rather than try to prove them wrong right there, they'll come to that conclusion all by themselves, just like I did, Right? We all have that walk, and it's not like, well, I'm farther along than you are. Listen, there are people who are gifted that as soon as they get saved, they see leaps and bounds past us. They're, that's neither here nor there. By the way, do you know there's no measure of disciples? There's like no measure. There's no place where you just arrive. Like as soon as you graduate, you're going to be a good Christian. It's not going to happen. You'll graduate when you get to heaven. Until then, you're still learning. You're still learning. Now, an older generation has a lot to offer a younger generation simply out of this because they've had to live through it, period, period. And you're ignorant if you don't take their advice. But can I tell you something, older generation, the younger has a perspective sometimes, too, that you miss. And if you're not careful, you'll, you'll fail to listen to them when you should. They can teach you things, too. Some of the greatest business practices I've ever learned were from people 10 years younger than me. And it was advice that was handed down to them from their dads. I found that learning comes from both as as old as you want it to be and as young as you want it to be. I've learned things from my kids that taught me unbelievable things in ministry. Just watching my kids. Jesus knows all this stuff. He sees all this stuff, and yet he's not offended. Instead, he just asks him a couple of questions. Great, by the way, when it comes to discipleship, this is number one thing. Ask questions. That's great. He says, are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptisms of suffering I must be baptized with? <clears throat> which leads us to the next thing he's trying to teach right here, which is that every believer, every believer will drink from the cup of Christ. Which is to say the cup of suffering. We all suffer differently, but we all suffer the same. There are, listen, they're clueless. They have no idea what he's talking about. They got no idea that what is going to take place in the future for them. John is going to, by the way, if you don't know, let me just like bring this out. If we're reading Mark's account of it, then we're reading the apostle Peter. We know that Peter is going to be hung upside down and crucified upside down. We know that John and James, who are asking this question right now, John is going to live without a brother on the island of Patmos where he is stranded out there for the rest of his life. James is going to be the first martyr, or actually he'll be the second martyr. Stephen being the first one in the book of Acts, James would have his head cut off by the sword. Oh, are you ready to have this cup which I'm about to give you? Oh yeah, we're able. You have no idea what you're asking. You have no idea. No idea. They, they, they have no clue. And listen, this is only the beginning for them. For all the disciples that are listening, this is pretty much going to kill them all. They say we're able, but they don't know what their future is. And isn't that all of us? Aren't we all so brazen and bold before we know all the details? Oh, man, I'm all in. Whoa, 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 whoa. This is why, like, it's funny to me how we do discipleship in Christianity today. We're so quick to say, oh, man, just come to Jesus. Everything's going to be good. No, it's not. 
Here's what, you know what, just in my experience, let me just say it. Let me paraphrase that with that. So it's the clause. You can always back out of that one if you don't like it. But in my experience, you get saved and then you leave the church for a while. Because the devil comes after you. Because he discourages you. He creates issues in your life with your kids, with your spouse, with your finances, with everything under the sun. And you don't come back. And then you get bitter for a while at the church. And you think it was all a bunch of hypocritical stuff. All that junk. It happens to everybody. And then after a while, later down in life, when you've been seasoned a little bit, you come back. And you realize God never left you in the first place. That when you left the church, all you did was leave the organizational building with a name. That the church left with you. God was there the whole time. He listened to your rant and rave and he never took offense. He's the one that kept asking you questions. He's the one that kept pushing you for faith. He's the one that kept asking you, are you going to be bold? Are you going to still drink from this cup? Nobody ever. Jesus is the guy who says, did you count the cost? You better think twice before saying, I do to Christianity. Jesus is the one who said that. We make it to where anybody can come, yeah? But Jesus is the first one to say, I hope you count the cost. Know this. Like anybody can come, but know this. You're going to drink from this cup. There will be suffering. There will be persecution. But you'll also see great and mighty things too. Make no mistake. Uh, let's, look at, let's look at Paul. Paul healed people. His, his, shat, or, uh, his, his uh, handkerchief, they, they got a hold of that thing, and it just started healing people. Paul, Paul was able to make, like literally when somebody was talking, he said, be blind. And the guy went blind. Just like that, the power at the end of his fingertips, right? But Paul also was beaten, whipped, spit on, <laughs> mocked, persecuted. He ran out of town. I mean, that, they thought he was dead a couple times. They had to carry him out. Yeah, you're going to see some of the greatest things in your life, and you're also going to lose some of the greatest things in your life. Count the cost. Count the cost. Jesus, that's why he has like no like remorse. There's, I don't think Jesus spares remorse for the guy who's going to follow him. Like, I feel sorry for you. It's okay. You don't have to follow me. No, Jesus said it from the very beginning. No, just so you know, this is an all-inclusive deal. Like, once you say, yes, I'm going to follow you, you just know this. This is what's going to come in your life. And if you don't want that, you need to back out now. Because nothing will be worse than the guilt and shame from following me for a season and then leaving. It'll be, it, it'll be so much that you'll be scared to come back. I once heard a, a guy on TV say this, or maybe it was a TV show that said this, and it was a quote that stuck with me forever. It said, courage is what a man experiences before he knows all the details. Oh, I have the courage to come to Jesus, but I don't know exactly what's going to happen at all. What, what are these disciples saying in this moment? Yeah, we're able. Courage is what a man faces, what a man has before he knows all the details. Yeah, because I haven't told you how you're going to die. I just told you how I was going to die. I told you about what was going to happen to me. I haven't told you. By my, my the way, only Peter ever really gets to know. I mean, he never tells John, hey, John, man, you're going, to be, you're going to lose your brother. You're going to watch him get his head cut off. And then you're going to run for your life for a while. And you're going to find yourself stranded out there in prison in the middle of this island. And this is going to be your life forever. This is what it's going to cost you to follow me. Peter, this is what it's going to cost to follow me, man. You're going to feel shame and guilt after you denied me. But you know what? I'm going to come back, and I'm going to strengthen you up again. And then you're going to preach, and you're going to see the flowing of the Holy Spirit like you've never seen it before. And when that happens, they're going to come after you, Peter. The first two people they arrest after that is John and Peter. And they have to stand up for what they believe in or face jail. And by the grace of God, they get out of that, right? And we know that there's a series of just getting out of stuff before it finally catches them. They're not spared. (laughs) They're not spared. 
courage is what a man experiences before he knows all the details. But Jesus, he handles all of this with grace and with mercy. I mean, this whole conversation, it annoys the disciples and anybody else. If it was us, this would be so annoying to us. We would be so upset by this. I'm trying to tell you, like, I'm literally telling you about the turmoil I'm about to face. And you're not even listening to me. How would you feel? I mean, Jesus, that's a secret. It's yet to happen. God had given them a secret to the future. You ever wondered, God, would you just tell me, like, what's to come? And by the way, I, I, I would gamble that some of you, he has, and you've squandered it. God is boldly honest enough to tell them that they will indeed drink and be baptized and suffering. This is kind of a side note thing for me. This is the part where I kind of like always love Christ. This is one of the things we built this church around. One of the misnomers I found out in, in the, uh, as pastoring <clears throat> is this great kind of divide between the pulpit and the pew or the leadership or the pastoral leadership and the, and the pew was that it was always like, well, the people don't need to know everything because if they knew everything, that might be too much for them or they might not understand why we make the decisions we make. So they don't need to know everything. And so there's always this divide between what the leadership knows and what everybody else knows. And, we, and I've literally seen them like, 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 talk, like we're going to withhold information. We're not going to be as transparent about everything because we, they just won't understand. They, they, they won't get it. And, and what drives me crazy is the fact that this, you know we're all sheep, Right? Like, we're all sheep. I'm not, I'm not like the shepherd. I have a shepherding gift as a sheep. <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not a, I'm one of those, like when Jesus says he could leave the 90 and 9 and go after the one, right? You can leave with me. I'm, I'm part of the sheep. And I'll watch the sheep here as I'm part of the sheep. But you can leave them with me, Jesus, while you go after the next one. That's, that's kind of how I see myself more than anything. I, I, I'm part of the sheep. We are part of the sheep. Christ has always brought, listen, he's transparent about everything that happens. Matter of fact, I am positive, if you go back and read the Gospels, that God purposely withheld information from Jesus because Jesus would have told us. I'm serious. Remember when they said, well, when when is the next coming? He says, man, no man knows the day or the hour. Jesus doesn't even know because if God would have told him, he would have told it. Because he told everything he knew. He said, all that the Father has told me, that's what I said. I, he was completely transparent. That's how you know he's our friend. He was super transparent about all the affairs of the future and he was, everything he was given knowledge to. And listen, none of them really understood it either. <laughs> Come on now. They didn't understand a single thing he was saying here. It's not till later on that we read in the book of Acts, they go, oh, mm, that was good. Can you imagine when looking at those faces? Can you imagine preaching to that? Man, I'm telling you this. This is a future thing. You don't really get it. Uh, and I'm telling all this. And they're like, yeah, you ain't got a clue, do you? <laughs> a single clue. I'm just talking to the wind here. You know, but it's going to come back. Like, I know that I'm not saying it in vain. It's going to come back. One day it's going to recall into your brain, and that's going to be the time that you need it. Right? This is what he did. Jesus didn't have followers. Jesus had friends. After he died and certain things came to pass, they witnessed for themselves the public honesty of Jesus. He was just so honest about everything. He trusted them with future knowledge, good or bad. Good or bad. Good or bad. 
I wish every leader was like this. I wish every church was like this. I wish every denomination was like Jesus in that sense. Hey, trust their people. Listen, trust that God will work it out. <clears throat> trust that God will work it out. Well, they may not see me as a great leader. Uh, okay. And we're going to talk about that too, about what, how you should view yourself too. That might be some of the problem here, and Jesus is going to deal with this stuff. It's interesting to me that how Jesus is about to really deal with the whole leadership thing. Not, not done with suffering. And let's just break, I side-noted there a little bit, but because suffering really is never easy to talk about. I mean, it, it, it's, it's just a few chapters back, but in Matthew 16, it's, it, they had the conversation where Jesus says, if anyone wants you to be my follower... Uh, give up on your own way to be, and take up your cross and follow me. Well, they knew what the cross was. They knew what it was. They knew what he was implying. So it, it stands to reason why they might have been overly confident uh, in chapter 20 at the response of Christ as soon as he starts talking about suffering. Well, you said take up our cross and follow you. We, we, we left everything. We followed you. Like, like, guys, this isn't worse as it gets. <laughs> it's been pretty good right now, right? I mean, this is not as worse as it gets. There's simply no way you can read the Gospels, though, and walk away from it going, well, man, God doesn't want us to suffer. I don't think he wants you to suffer. Here's what I think. I think you're going to because you belong to him. I think because this world groans at anger with him, man. But I think because this world is standing full of sin and full of, uh, of all this evil that wickedness that's in the world, that it groans against a God who wants to declare his glory through it. It's, not, it's, 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 it's anti-cultural. It's anti-social. It's, it's, I mean, think about the church. Think about it. You, you are going to be persecuted. There's no way around it. No way around it. How you deal with it is what he's trying to show you a lot of here. Are you going to be angry about it and take so much offense that you can't be lugging back? Listen, if somebody's going to be ridiculous, are you going to try to straighten ridiculous? Because, by the way, you can't. You're the dumb one that gets in that conversation. The idiot you're talking to is not going to understand. And if you know they're an idiot already, you're the one if you keep arguing. It's like trying to argue with a two-year-old. Good luck. Because because I say so is absolutely valid to a two-year-old. Cuz. Cuz is a full-on explanation. All right? It's the same thing with grown-ups. You think it's fun, but it's true. Grown-ups have a cuz, too, where they don't listen anymore. They shut all things down because they just can't. They just can't think about anything else. All of the Bible describes suffering. But you have to move past that to the place where Paul's at. This is what suffering produces. 2 Corinthians 12.10, Paul says, That's why I take pleasures. In my weakness, and in my insults, and in the hardships, and in the persecutions, and trouble that I suffer for Christ. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. Ultimately, what he's saying is suffering will produce in you what it produced in Paul. A growing knowledge of grace and mercy. It will eventually bring about this like bizarre confidence in the unseen things. <laughs> Like, how do you walk with such confidence? And you believe in this God for which you've never seen? Because I just know him. Why? Because you've suffered. You know. He's been there in the hardest parts. Suffering is like, for, is like a forge to metal. It's honing you into something sharp and specific. A tool that God is going to use to glorify his works and his message across the earth. And hear me when I say it. None of it's easy. And I'm going to try to soften the blow of suffering because I think 
No matter what you experience, it's going to be hard. And I think uh, worse than pain or physical pain on the narrow road is the loneliness that most people will experience. To follow God, they say this about prophets. I don't know why it would be anywhere else. To follow God almost is to be alone. At some point, you have to reconcile that I'm going to follow God whether anybody goes. You have to reconcile that. My wife, she might not head the same direction as I am, but I'm headed to Jesus, so she doesn't head there. I'm going to try to lead her the best I can, but I'm not diverting my path for her. I'm trying to lead her to him. Same for my kids. My kids might make bad decisions as they grow up. That's a part of life. My job is to stay headed to Christ. I'm not going to deviate that path for them. I'm not going to stop going to church. I'm not going to stop reading my word. I'm not going to stop praying. I'm not going to stop believing. I'm going to draw closer and closer and closer. I think most people today have forgotten what it is to be alone. I mean, today's generation is so technologically connected, it's just about impossible to be alone. I've literally debated of whether we had a cell phone box where we just like, hey, man, you drop your phone off when you come in. And just like forbidding it here. Not that I'm against cell phones, but just for like a few hours where you just didn't have it on you. I think like we could like use that. <laughs> I think it would be good for us. I think that it's hard because we're so connected and we're so entertained. Yet we see the disciples and many times in the Bible, tons of Christian believing people by themselves a lot meditating, praying, seeking the Lord, fasting. Jesus spent hours and hours alone. Even once, he spent up to 40 days in the desert being alone. John the Baptist did the same thing. By the way, guys, when they came out of that 40 days of being alone in the desert, they came out with power and their ministries began. Can you imagine being 40 days by yourself to the point, man, you've been seeking God for 40 days straight you might just come out with power too. Brennan Manning said that, that most people don't like being alone because they don't like themselves. That they can't think of a worse person to be stranded in a room with than themselves. They don't even like themselves, so that, why would they want to hang out in a room with themselves? They can't believe God would like them because they don't even like them. And they wouldn't want to put Christ through them. Suffering, listen, it burns out of us all sorts of things and notions. Like the forge, it will burn out the impurities of the metal so that we can be reborn and transformed into something stronger. That's what suffering does. It forges us. It makes us more pure. It, it pulls out of those things, man, that we've been hanging on to. When Job suffered, we got a whole book to see how he dealt with it. By the way, if you read that right, it's at God's hands. God allows it. And by the time you get to the end of, of like just big book of suffering, Job is the first one in the Old Testament that says, Behold, my eyes now have seen the Lord. There is something on the other end. Even Jesus knows this. Last thing Jesus deals with is he lives, deals with leadership. He's got to get these guys ready. I mean, he has three years, and these, he doesn't have a, he doesn't, this, there's just not enough time to, to argue about what's inappropriate and what's right to say and what's not right to say. He knows they're committed. So let's just move past the offense and get straight to what I need to teach you. you know? And that's kind of how Jesus reacts to this. I'm not going to worry about being offended. I love you guys. You're my friends. You're not saying it to hurt me. You're saying it because this is how you are. It's okay. But then he begins to teach them something about leading. He turns 
he turns, basically turns leadership upside down. Everything that they've ever known about leadership, he just throws it out the door. He says, you see how everybody leads? Chunk that. That's not how we do it. He specifically looks at how the world handles leadership, where one person is in authority over everyone else. He presents the pride, the possible abuse of power that these people sometimes carry into that position. And then he just like topples it. He says that the greatest person among all of you will be the person that lives, that tries and works to be the lowest amongst you. Literally with effort, you're going to work to be the slave of everyone else. You'll be at everyone else's beck and call. You'll be at everyone else. When they, at, when they need you, you're going to come. When they say, hey, I need this, will you, can you help me? You're going to say yes. You're going to be their slave, their beck and call. In the kingdom of God, the servant is the leader. Let me say it again. In the kingdom of God, the servant is the leader. And Jesus provides this example. After all, it's him who tells us, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life for many. So to serve and to give our lives, to pour out our lives for the sake of other, is what biblical leadership looks like. What it is not is the pastor coming up in here and just coming here. Yes, this is me getting to serve you this morning. Serving you the word of God. But your job now is to take that out and serve somebody else the word of God. Serve somebody else the love of God. Serve somebody else the grace of God. This means sacrifice. There's no way you're going to get out of it. This means you're going to give up your time at times. That's just how it is. You're going to, you're going to give up space maybe in your house for something. or You're going to help somebody with something that you don't really want to help out. But you're going to do it with a smile. Because it's not about what you want. It's about what Jesus wants. And you're not about what you want either. You're about what Jesus wants. Because you're his disciple. Not your own. This means often doing what you don't want to do. It means sometimes going places you don't want to go. But it also means being there for others and getting to care for them. The pastor isn't the greatest among you. He's the least. My role here is to serve you, is to pray for you and guide you and to be there for you when you need someone. The pastor only exists to serve the church, not the church to serve the pastor. Period. Jesus came to serve his people, and he was God's gift to them. He was God's gift to them. My, my, my role is to be that for you. God's gift to you. And if you wish to lead or be a leader in the kingdom, you're never going to do it by being over something. Just, just saying. I think that's the misnomer in the church. Well, if I'm doing this, and I'm running something, or I'm with this, and I'm running this, or doing this, doing this ministry, then I'm really doing something for God. Listen. Some of the best ministries in the church, you won't want the person who stays after and cleans. I remember uh, Tony Cook, who is, writes a lot of books now, but when he talks about how God platformed his ministry, you know what he started out doing before he wrote a bunch of books? He started out as a janitor at the church. He just cleaned the bathrooms. Him and his wife just volunteered to clean the bathrooms because he knew nobody else would want that job. Well, I'm going to start there. That's where my ministry is going to start. In the bathrooms. I'm going to clean those bathrooms. I'm going to make sure they're the best bathrooms people ever see. And it's a nasty job and nobody wants that job. But that's the, that's the job God, God, lo God loves those who, just, who love being little. Who love being little. And if you can be faithful with the little things, then God will hand you something more. But listen, it'll never be about the more. Your heart will still be like, well, whatever God wants is what I'll do. And it's equal. You can, you can be over 100 and be over 5 and it's the same it's not, it's not more. You're not a greater leader now with greater capacity. No. 
You're still the same servant, just being faithful with what God's given you, period. Period. The only way we go up is by being low. By being low. So I'm going to just recap real quick, and then, and then we'll bring worship back up. I, can, I, I don't think I can say some of these enough, because this is all taking place in this conversation. Man, be in the moment. Be here. We're, about, we're getting ready to worship. Yeah, we're going to do a few songs, and then it's going to end. But can I tell you, this is your moment where you get to sing to God, and you get to give God your heart and, and be before the Lord and that every word. You know, one of the biggest things that I think about in worship, to be in that moment where I am worshiping, I think, Lord, let my, let my heart match the words I'm singing so that I'm not seeing something in vain. Let, let me be here in this moment and let, the, let, me, let me capture the words within my heart so that I can transform my heart right now to this moment where it is worshiping you, not worry about what needs to be done next. By the way, when this happens, I, you'll have to forgive me because sometimes I mess up on the guitar or I'll mess up on other things because I'm so busy trying to focus, but it's true. Secondly, own your own questions. Own your own faults, your decisions. All right? <laughs> be a grown-up. Go straight to Jesus. You don't have to ask me to get to Jesus. Hey, will you just pray that the will of God? Listen, you can pray that the will of God. I'm already praying for you. I pray for all of you. I pray every one of you, I get to see every one of your faces every Sunday. You know, mostly not because you need to come to church to be saved, but mainly just because I want to see your face. Because you're my family and you're my friends. So for you, you have to pray for you too, you know. I pray for me all the time. Here's how you know when you've been with Jesus long enough is when the prayers for others out all of a sudden take more precedent than the prayer for you. By the way, you're doing a good job if that becomes you. Thirdly, be slow to anger and offense. This is my big one for me, especially here lately as I've been working point of sales. When I worked in the church, it was a lot easier, I think. I didn't see a lot of the stuff that happened in the workplace because I was in the church, but being in the workplace now in the last two or three years and dealing with point of sales and seeing people who don't read, who don't have manners, who weren't taught manners maybe, who weren't taught things that I was fundamentally taught, which by the way, you know what it's made me do? I've called my, you know how many times I've called my mom, told her I loved her for teaching me how to be just a good guy? You know, I'm literally, and just pay attention and have like manners. And I've, I've had to call my mom and dad and tell them, you did a good job raising me. Like, man, I see all these other people out here now that you can tell they don't have parents at all. You know, and, but, but, but God's working on my heart here. Like, not, Lord, I don't want to be offended with these people. I want to be able to talk to them in love, even though it is, makes me indignant. <laughs> For um, no escaping suffering. It's all, it's all, we're all going to have it. By the way, this is why we need each other. This is why when you don't show up on Sunday, I worry for you. Not because you can't go somewhere or do something on a Sunday, but because I know how hard the Christian walk is. And I know that we need each other to survive it. We need each other. That's how the whole early church was formed. It was not formed because Jesus said what you should do. He didn't lay out a template that says you should go put your DBA in for a name, register with the United States for a nonprofit status, and then finally have your organization so you can take ties and all that kind of stuff and get your organizational platform together. Jesus just said, follow me. That's it. That was like his whole plan for the church. Because by the way, th this wasn't like the idea of church in the book of Acts. The church was developed because of persecution. Suffering built the church and suffering sustains the church. The reason we continue to join in every Sunday, every church here in this town is because we all have some things in common and suffering is definitely one of them. When we're happy, when our kids are graduating, when our kids are having birthdays, we celebrate together. And when we suffer, we suffer together. And we share that burden and we share that load. 
And lastly, we lead by serving. We, we come. We, we, we make ourselves available to everybody. Well, I, don't wanna, I really don't have time to do this. I, I've got, you know, I have a wife and three kids. I don't have time to go to, I have to make time. I have to figure out how to balance that in my life. Why? Because God has called me to it. God has called all of us to it. That's the difference between you and everybody else. It's not, oh, well, that's what God calls pastor to do. No. You're a Christian leader, all of you. You're a disciple of God. All right? As a disciple of God, you were called to Christian leadership. I think after we're done with Isaiah, that's where I'm headed, guys. I'm just letting you know. I'm going to start teaching on leadership again. Because this is where we have to head. We are the leaders of Marble Falls. We are the Christian leaders of this city and this community. And the more we can educate ourselves of what Christian leadership looks like, the better we can lead others to Christ and, and be Jesus to them. Let's worship.